Amen. Good morning. My name is Aaron. I'm the pastor of New Community. I got no cheers. I got nothing. I got absolutely nothing. Totally. That's okay. That's okay. Hey, Biola Bound. There we go. Glad you guys are here. Hey, today we're going to be looking, uh, starting off in Genesis chapter 12. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 12. Now, if you're new here, you're new to the Bible, that's okay. We love that you're here. And we want to go ahead and direct you to the screens above. We'll have the scriptures up there as well. And one of the things we love to do is we love to do a little bit of background before we dive into our text for today. So we're going to start off in Genesis 12 very quickly. Then we're going to move over to Isaiah chapter 40 and land in today's text, which is Luke chapter 7. Luke, thank you so much. So uh, while you're doing that, I just want to remind you guys, one of the things that I have the privileges of doing is leading our Rooted ministry, and I am so excited about what God has been doing. Rooted is this 10-week spiritual growth experience. You guys have been hearing about it for weeks and months, but every time I'm up here, I'm always going to talk about it because God's doing great stuff. People are coming every Wednesday night, over 200 people, they're getting connected. They're starting to learn about God and grow in Him. They're starting to grow with one another, and they're starting to understand their purpose, and God is doing great things. So every week, I get to hear all these stories of what God is doing, and specifically in our group, the stories are unbelievable, but I can't share them with you because I break confidentiality, okay? So, but it's good stuff. I want to encourage you. Next session is in January. Consider hopping into a rooted group. We really want to help you get connected. All right, Genesis chapter 12, very familiar passage. Many of you have uh, studied this passage before. Mike talks about it all the time, but it's significant because it's God's call of Abram, who will later become known as Abraham. And the significance of this call is that God wants to redeem and restore his broken, sinful creation. And so part of his redemptive plan is to go ahead and raise up a community, a people, a family for himself. And the promise to Abram is that he's going to bless this community of people so that he can bless the whole world. So let's read this real quick. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I'll make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So this significant passage is setting the stage for what the rest of the Bible starts to talk about which is this nation later known as Israel that God rescues out of slavery in Egypt and eventually becomes uh, their own nation and one of the key promises as a part of that blessing to Abram was that God would give his people a land for themselves. And that this promised land would be abundant and it would be this opportunity for them to dwell with God and and love one another. And people all over would see how blessed, how abundant, how provided for, how cared for, how loved this community of people would be. And they'd want to know why. They'd say, who is this God that they follow? And so this was the vocation of Israel. But for those of you unfamiliar with the Bible, the whole story in the Old Testament is about this nation of Israel that fails to live out its vocation. And so God promises that someday he's going to go ahead and bring about Israel to where they really need to be 
Because one of the problems is they sinned, they disobeyed God, they didn't live as God desired, and as a result, God had to punish them and had to remove them from the land, and they eventually went into exile. They were alienated from God. They were alienated from the promise, the inheritance, and all these incredible blessings. And so all these people had heard about this wonderful God that their ancestors had told them about, and they would remember Genesis chapter 12. And so God, what he did is he said, well, hey, I know you guys are living in tough times. Can you imagine living in exile? Most of us can't. But it's almost like a foreign power to come over, take over the United States, and then rip us out of our homes and send us into a foreign land that hated us. This is what it was like to be in exile for the Israelites. And so this was crazy. And so they were longing, when is God going to come through? When is he going to restore us? And so God would raise up these prophets, Isaiah being one of them, to say, there is hope. God is going to do something. He's going to come back. And so Isaiah chapter 40 is an illustration of this. Turn with me quickly to Isaiah 40. Verse 2. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double all of her sins. Hundreds and hundreds of years later, after Isaiah prophesied this to the nations of Israel that were in exile, there was still no deliverance. Yes, Israel actually had, some had been able to go back to the promised land, but they were under foreign rule. They were under a foreign oppression still. And so many still wondered, when is God going to come through? Is he going to send a deliverer of some kind, this Messiah that we keep hearing about? And so as we move into the book of Luke, what we've done is we've just set the stage of understanding that if you were a first century Jew, there would just be this longing, this anticipation of this deliverer that was going to go ahead and bring about the forgiveness of Israel's sins and restore them into proper relationship with God, where God would be the king over Israel, they'd get their land back, and foreign rulers would leave. Now, in the book of Luke, what Luke is showing us is he's saying, hey, this deliverer is actually Jesus. It's not uh, a political ruler who's going to try to overthrow Rome. It's not going off into the wilderness and hiding and, and being a part of a, a, like a monk-like community known as the Essenes and living a pure life out there. That's not going to bring it back. And it's, it's not going to be some of the religious systems that are established in Israel right now. God is going to do something new and shh, It's actually in this Jesus. He's the one that's coming to deliver people. He's coming to be the one to return people from exile. But here's what's interesting. He's doing it in a way that no one expects and with the kind of people no one could imagine. So here we are. We're in Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, verse 36 and following. And one of the things we learn from this story is that the Pharisees are a community of people that um, are saying, you know what? We want to be the pure Israel that God has always intended, so we're going to really be good at obeying the Torah, the books of the law, the commands of God, and we're also going to intensify the priesthood's purity laws, and we then are going to be the real Israel, all right? We're going to be the ones ready when God comes back to restore Israel, all right? And yet, here's this Jesus showing up, saying these things and doing these miracles. And so people are wondering, who is this Jesus? We come upon a story of one of these Pharisees 
who doesn't outrightly reject Jesus. He's curious about Jesus. So we're going to pick up the story in verse 36. We're going to read through it real quick. Then we'll go back and unpack it to understand its relevance for us today. All right? Okay, verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house, and he reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair. She kissed them and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this that even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So what's going on here? We'll go back up to verse 36. One of the Pharisees invites Jesus to have dinner with him. So one of the things we learn right away is that this Pharisee is actually very curious about Jesus. If you were to read a couple of verses prior, you would see in Luke that Jesus rebukes many of the Pharisees because they are not believing in what Jesus and John have been doing, carrying out the purposes of God. And yet here we have a contrast with a Pharisee who says, no, I want you to come over. I want to hear a little bit more. And so Jesus doesn't reject them. Jesus goes to his house. Now, notice it also says that he goes in and he starts to recline. Now, when we think of the word recline, what do we think? We think we're relaxing, right? We got a leather man. We got a remote control. We got the Dallas Cowboys on. Okay. 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 All right. Okay. Just, just checking. All right. Uh, so, we are thinking, oh, this means relaxing, right? This is, this is what this means. No, in this case, when you're reclining, you are actually being invited to a banquet. You're actually enjoying a feast. If it was a normal meal, you'd just be sitting at a table. But in this case, the Pharisee is saying, hey, I'm going to go ahead and honor him a little bit, and I'll get this whole banquet thing going. So Jesus goes and he reclines, but something that for us we would miss, but we learn later in the text, is that the Pharisee has actually committed a huge faux pas right here, okay? And it's about hospitality. So at the same time, he's setting up a banquet, but, but he actually doesn't do the most common thing a first century Jew would do 
in being courteous when Jesus entered. So for, tonight, for today, what's common courtesy? If someone were to stop by your house, knock on the door, and show up unannounced, how would you respond? The courteous thing would be to say, oh, hey, Joe, come on in. It's great to see you. Hey, can I take your coat? And then I remember we're in SoCal, so we don't have coats. But you would invite them to come in. You'd have them, hey, have a seat. They'd sit down, and then you'd say, hey, do you need some, something to drink, a water, coffee, something like that? Great. Common courtesy, right? But have you ever been or experienced a place or a home that lacked courtesy, that was totally offensive? Has it ever happened to you? You know, when I was growing up, my best friend and I met early on. He was about 11, I was about 11. And one of the things that my parents uh, did, specifically my mom, was babysit like the entire neighborhood, okay? So if you lived in our neighborhood, my mom was always welcoming kids in and they could stay at our house, which my sister and I hated because all of our toys would get used and get broken and so sure enough one day this guy Matt shows up at my house my mom wants to introduce me and I'm sitting there with my back to the door she walks in she says Aaron Matt's here I don't even turn around I point the Legos are over there I mean can you believe I'm actually a pastor I mean that's incredible And and, I mean, he will never forget this, and he always reminds me, but it's totally offensive, right? Well, if you were a first century Jew, uh, what was happening here was the Pharisee was supposed to follow through a couple key steps before Jesus comes in. Doesn't do it, goes right past it. So here we are in verse 37. What's going on? Well, then a woman in the town known as someone who had lived a sinful life shows up. Can you imagine your Facebook profile? Hi, my name is so-and-so, A Sinful Life. And this is a woman who's well-known, a notorious sinner. And from the text, we understand that she was most likely a prostitute. And everyone knew her sins were well-known. And so one of the things that shocks us here, and shocks the Pharisee especially, is to see that this unclean woman, this prostitute, has shown up. I mean, if you were to look through the Old Testament, you would find passage after passage talking about how shameful it was to be a prostitute. In Leviticus 19.29, it's not up on the screen, it says, do not degrade your daughter by making her a prostitute or the land will turn to prostitution and be filled with wickedness. In the book of Proverbs, there's proverb after proverb saying, beware and stay away and don't be tempted and get away. So for this prostitute to come in, can you imagine what this Pharisee, this pious Jew is thinking? absolutely stunned. And so how did she get in? Well, one of the things that was common when you held a banquet like this is you would leave the door wide open so that people from the lower classes could come in and either overhear the conversation or they could actually have some of the scraps of food and leftovers. But the key thing is they weren't allowed to approach the table, especially in light of the banquet and the honored guests and the Pharisees. And so what, of course, what did this woman do? She broke right through that. She went and touched Jesus. She did the unthinkable. And so as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. This is verse 38. Then she wiped them with her hair and kissed them and poured perfume on them. This is absolutely scandalous. In this culture, if a woman were to actually unroll her hair, it was an act of intimacy. It was erotic. Later, rabbinical writers would say that if you married a woman who went out in public and unrolled her hair, you had justification to divorce her without a financial settlement. 
It was that scandalous. So can you just imagine this Pharisee sitting here, this woman comes in, she's a well-known sinner, a prostitute, and not only does she break through and touch Jesus, she unrolls her hair, which is absolutely scandalous. And then what does she do? She starts weeping over Jesus, and, and, and she's, she's actually taking this perfume that she's got, and she's starting to pour it onto his feet. Now, for us, we see this description of an alabaster jar, and we're like, okay, great. But this was extremely expensive stuff. Like, only the wealthiest people could have something like this. And one of the things that prostitutes would use it for is, let's just say they didn't have deodorant back then, okay? And so everybody was on natural, and here she wanted to take advantage of her ability to attract people. So she had her perfume, she'd wear it around her neck, she'd open it up, and the aroma would kind of go, you know, and go all over, and, and she would attract clientele. So this was not only um, this very expensive perfume that she was obviously like pouring out on Jesus' feet, which is crazy, but it was also the tool of her trade. This was her livelihood. This is where she found her significance, her foundation of life came from being able to attract other people to herself. And here she's pouring it out at the feet of Jesus. So what is she doing? What is going on? And what's the Pharisee going to do? Verse 39, the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this. He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman that she is. That she's a sinner. She is totally not living as a person who is a part of God's covenant community. She is definitely not welcome. And I cannot believe that this Jesus, this prophet, supposedly, is allowing her, an unclean person, to touch him. He's not stopping her. And so we learn very quickly that the Pharisees' motives was to understand who this Jesus was, and if he was a spokesperson for God. In fact, he was way, way more than that. And so what is this about in verse 39? He sees this. He reveals his motive. Now notice this. He's thinking this, and look at how ironic it is. Jesus, of course, knows what he's thinking and responds in this way. Jesus answered, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher. Jesus knows his thoughts and says, Simon, he doesn't call him Pharisee, he calls him by his name. He respects him, even though Jesus has been offended because he's broken hospitality rules. And so he tells him this parable, which is really the climax of the story here. And this parable is this. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. So this is expensive stuff. This is probably about a year and three quarters wages for the average person. Uh, uh, compared to 50, which was about two months' wages. But the point is this. Notice in verse 42, neither of them had the money to pay him back. So the amount didn't matter so much as neither of them could pay it back. But now which of them will love him more as a result of how much they owed? And obviously Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. And Jesus said, You've judged correctly. Now, when we think of debt, all throughout the New Testament, the New Testament writers flip back and forth between debt and sin. They're synonymous. And the idea behind that is this, is that the moneylender is God. And and all of creation owes God because of its tainted, sinful, broken state. And so we all owe God. 
We owe God our allegiance and our obedience. We're all in a state of brokenness towards his good will and his good ways and worship of him. And so here, this parable is depicting that sin is a debt owed back to God. And so the key learning from this is that this, those who consider themselves with less debt or sin do not respond to forgiveness with as much gratitude and devotion as the person who sees their desperation and need for total forgiveness of debt. Now, how free are people from social conventions when they're desperate? They are totally free, right? So imagine you're in a department store, you lose your child. Anyone ever done this? You know, how do you start off? Billy, 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 Billy! And you start freaking out, you're telling everybody, and then suddenly they're on the intercom, and I mean, right? You have lost your kid, you're going crazy, you're going to find them. You don't care what anybody thinks. And you know, think about it, when somebody is desperate for money, now I'm not talking for a loan for a house, I'm talking desperate for their next meal. Social conventions out the door. Earlier this week, I was actually eating lunch. Someone walked up to me out of the blue and just said, hey, can I have some money? I mean, it was just so nonchalant. It was amazing to me. I'm like, oh, hi, why do you need money? And what's your name and what's going on? And and he goes, oh, well, you know, I I just, I don't have a job. I go, well, what have you been doing? Landscape, okay, cool. You know, well, where do you live? Where are you sleeping? And he's like, well, I'm not from here. I'm up from Linwood. I come down here and hang out. I'm like, what What do you mean? Where are you staying? He's like, oh, I just sleep on the streets. And he just so nonchalant and just, yeah, can I have some money? I'm just thirsty. And I was just sitting there amazed. I said, dude, absolutely. What's your name? Come on over. Let's talk. Got him a meal and started talking with him a little bit. But, but it was just crazy to think this guy is so desperate, social conventions out the window. Didn't, have, didn't bat an eye. And I thought about myself and I thought about my own heart. I thought about, boy, you know, I, I really lack a desperation for God. You know, I, I really resonate a lot with Simon in some ways. And Jesus makes a point as he turns now to the woman and he uses her as an object lesson to Simon the Pharisee. Do you see this woman? I came into your house and you didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put oil on my head as she poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. You see, Simon, he does not believe that he's been forgiven for a lot. He feels like, hey, I'm a pious Jew here. Look at the sinner over there. She's unclean. She's got a well-known nightlife. Look at me. I study Torah. I obey the purity codes above and beyond so many of other people. And Jesus is pointing out something about his own heart condition. He does not understand how indebted he is to God and how badly he needs forgiveness so that he can know the kind of love that God wants to give him. So what should have happened? The proper hospitality is like when Jesus came in, he should have brought water for his feet because there's dusty roads that you walk out on. He should have given him a kiss for a greeting. He should have anointed his head with oil. That was standard. And what does this woman do? She is extravagant. She is grateful. We're not totally sure why, but we assume from the text that she has experienced the ministry of Jesus before. 
And she heard that Jesus is here and she was like, I want to go thank him. I want to go see him. I want to go talk to him. I want to just adore him and worship him. She shows up and maybe she sees the slight that the Pharisee does with Jesus and she can't stand it. And she weeps at seeing the dishonor of her Savior. And she cries out over his feet and pours out the most expensive perfume and says, man, Whatever my life was in the past is nothing compared to this Jesus. She's been forgiven much, so she loves much. And so Jesus has correlated this story of the parable with his situation with these two. And so when people heard that Jesus said what next in verse 48, they could not help but hear the echoes of Isaiah and Genesis. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Why did they say that? Because only God has the right to forgive sins. And what was Jesus demonstrating? Jesus was not saying that she suddenly earned it. She's simply responding in gratitude because of the forgiveness that she's experienced in Jesus. You see, she has understood something that the Pharisee has not understood which is that Jesus truly is the deliverer who's come to bring people out of the exile, out of alienation from God, but not in the way the Pharisees had expected, by placing their faith in Jesus, the Messiah. And so Jesus says to her, your faith has saved you. And the verb tense there is in the imperfect, which means it's this continual state of forgiveness. I'm sorry, the perfect tense. It's a continual state of forgiveness. And so this was absolutely offensive to anybody that was there. They're like, wait a minute. God is the only one who forgives sins. What is he saying? Jesus is subverting the temple and the priesthood all in himself. It's no longer in going to the temple and sacrificing. God is doing something new to bring people to himself. And it's not just to ethnic Israel. It's actually to outsiders and prostitutes and tax collectors and notorious sinners. And this is good news. And yet on the inside, those people who thought themselves on the inside were missing what Jesus was doing. Their hearts were hard. They thought they'd been forgiven little. And Simon, as a result, loved little. This is doing violence to the Pharisees' whole project of understanding how do I keep covenant community with God? And so look at what Jesus is doing. He's inviting all of these different people to the table. Those who are forgiven much love much. And those forgiven little love little. And I just couldn't help but think about, man, is is there anything relevant about this for us today? I mean, can you imagine if the American church lived this out in such a way where we didn't become just known for our stances, but we were known for our incredible love? What would that do for our hearts towards giving and serving and evangelism? I mean, so many of us have already said yes to Jesus. And so the question I ask myself first and us here is, do our lives show that we've encountered this Jesus and are living lives of extravagant love for him and for others? Does your life look like that? For those of us who think God could never love us, this message is for you. Jesus is a friend of sinners. 
And God does not want anyone, he doesn't want anyone to miss out on his forgiveness and his love. He wants everybody to understand that although you are indebted because of your sin to be separated from God forever, I want to bring you back. I care too much about you to leave your untransformed heart alone. I want to transform you, but you've got to surrender fully to me or you are going to be forgiven little and loved little. I don't know about you, but this messes with me. It really does. I was preparing this week. I was at Starbucks late one night. My wife is texting me fervently. I can actually see that in the text. And she's saying, Honey, I think we have rats in our house. And being the loving pastoral husband, I just text her and I say, deal with it. I mean, this teaching really makes me uncomfortable. I'm so amazed sometimes that that my heart hasn't changed to the point where I'm desperate for God and I I just want to serve Him and worship Him. And I find myself identifying very easily with the Pharisee. You know, recently my daughter joined a soccer team and it has been so fun. First soccer team ever. Purple diamonds. Oh, they're awesome. You know, and they don't know what they're doing, but it's great. And in the midst of it, I'm meeting all these couples, these families, and we become friends, and they say, hey, come over to our beach house, and let's hang out, and we're hanging out, and, you know, some of them aren't churchgoers or anything like that, and one of them in particular who says she's neutral says, Aaron, how did you become a minister? And anytime someone uses the word minister, I always know they're not a churchy person because, you know, no one calls me minister, but, but I said, well, well, let me tell you about this story. And so as I, I walk her through my journey of coming to know Jesus, I, I feel like I'm kind of sharing some pretty honest and raw stuff. Like, I'm, I'm not trying to paint this pretty picture. I'm chasing after this, and I'm chasing after that, and I'm, I lack peace, and I, I don't have a sense of purpose, and I'm getting my significance from these other things, and, and I just felt wrecked by God's grace and love and this and that. And then I, t- and I turned my life to Jesus, and, and, and I still struggle with these things and blah, blah, blah. And I said, what about you? Where are you in the journey of faith with God? And she paused and she said, my story's not as innocent as yours. And what scared me about that, what saddened me about that, was even in the midst of me trying to share honestly about my life, whatever had been communicated was not somebody who was broken enough for her to pick up on. Where, where she kind of thought like, wow, you, you kind of got it all together. And yeah, it makes sense that you would turn to Jesus because he'd probably want you. And that's what was kind of the subtle response. And I was like, oh my gosh, no. How, how could I possibly create this feeling that I am, I am no different than anyone else? I am broken and being restored only by the grace and the love of God. I'm so bummed that she felt that way. And so for me, I just know God, God needs to continue to work in my own heart so that I can really see my own sin clearly and how indebted I am to God. Because if I don't focus in on what Jesus has done, it'll hinder my ability to love deeply and extravagantly. But on the other hand, I also feel like I can relate to the prostitute because I long, I long to love God. I long to be more full of his love and be more free from the social conventions 
to just serve and love and glorify and bring praise to him with my life. I want that. And I started thinking about, well, what's part of the reason why I struggle with that? And as I came up with, I started thinking about the woman who kind of poured out her significance at the feet of Jesus, remember, with the alabaster jar? And I started to think about, you know, any time I place significance in any, my significance in anything else except for Jesus, it's going to hinder my ability to know how much I've been forgiven. You know, we live in such a comfortable world, a comfortable culture. Boy, it's so easy not to be desperate, isn't it? And yet Jesus wants us to keep coming back and be reminded of the fact that, man, I have forgiven you. You don't understand. Let me remind you how far you were separated from me. And yet, I love you so much, I'm going to die for you. But one of the things that's so interesting and powerful for me as well is to notice that Jesus is is actually inviting the Pharisee and the prostitute. You know, notice that the Pharisee, although he invited Jesus in, he kind of slided him, and Pharisees were rejecting Jesus all the time. Jesus showed up, and he didn't leave. And he actually coached Simon. He spoke his name. He told him a parable to teach him. And I believe, by grace, for him to turn towards faith in Jesus. And so for some of us in here who feel like the Pharisee, there is hope. And for those of us in here that feel more like the prostitute, where we feel like, man, we keep messing up, and we, feel, we, we can't get our act cleaned up before coming to Jesus, the fact is the matter, you're not supposed to, and you never will, and we're all unworthy. And so that's good news. You're a perfect candidate. And for some of you, you've been hearing this message over and over and over again. But today, I want to give you the opportunity to make that decision, to say yes to Jesus. I'm coming. I'm doing it. I'm following him. I'm tired of living for myself and living out of guilt and shame and what other people think about me. I want to give my life to Jesus. I want to start following him. I'm so done. I'm done living for myself. I'm done trying to control my life. And today, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that. And some of us are probably in between somewhere. And the great news is we're going to take communion afterwards to remember, to remind ourselves the big scope of God's forgiveness because we forget. And we need to dwell and think and ponder and marinate and allow Jesus' love, his grace to transform us from the inside out because the greatest theology is for us to live out God's purposes in love. So we're going to take communion in just a moment. So would you bow your heads with me? Lord Jesus, I know that our lives are going to look a lot differently when we understand the depth of our sin and how much you sacrificed for us on the cross so that we could be rescued, that we could be restored that we could, be, uh, we could return from exile because of our sin. And I know for some of us in here, we are really struggling with this whole idea. We have a hard heart. We, we acknowledge right now that we've been prideful. We've been self-righteous. We do not feel that we've been forgiven much, and so we do not love much. And so for if that's you in here, I just want to invite you, raise your hand right now. Close, everyone's got their eyes closed. Raise your hand. If you feel like you need prayer specifically for that, just raise your hand. Right? Absolutely. Raise your hand. You just want God to come in and just wash over your heart. I'm so proud of you. Just raise your hand. Yes. And I want to just pray over these people that have raised their hands. And for those that didn't have the courage to raise their hands, if that's you, know this, 
Jesus Christ loves you. He forgives you. He wants you to understand how much he loves you. That in spite of the depth of your sin and separation, he wants to renew your heart and renew a right spirit within you. And he's going to do that. And so I pray your blessing, Lord, over these individuals that want to have hearts that are soft and supple and that love extravagantly. You can put your hands down. Keep your eyes closed. There's some of you in here, you have never given your life to Jesus. And today is your day. Today is your opportunity to say yes to Jesus. You don't need to have it all figured out. But you do need to know that there's a God who loves you and that you are living in a state of separation from him because of your own sin. And he's calling you to turn towards him and walk away from the previous way of life, to start following him and obeying him. And if that's you, everyone, eyes closed, just raise your hand. You want to start following Jesus. Just raise your hand right now in faith. Raise it up high. And say, I want to follow Jesus. Go ahead, yes. Raise your hand right now. I want to follow Jesus. Amen. That's so great. I see you in the back. It's great. It is time for you to know God's forgiveness and your love. You want to start walking with anybody else. Feel free. Raise your hand right now. It's okay. No one's looking. Excellent. Beautiful. Beautiful. With your arms raised up high. Just pray this simple prayer and you are inviting Jesus to come into your life. It doesn't matter so much the words you say but the faith behind it. Lord Jesus Christ, just say this in your heart. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for forgiving me of my sin. I acknowledge I've been living apart from you. I want the Holy Spirit to come in and take over. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross. Would you help me to follow you? Thank you, Jesus, for all that you've done and bringing me into your family. In Jesus' name, amen. So proud of you. If you've made that decision today, I I really want to celebrate with you and Um, I pray that you would go ahead and let people know you made that decision. Fill out a connection card. Let us know you made that decision. Go talk to the prayer team afterwards. Right now we're going to take communion. And we take communion to remember the sacrifice that Jesus has offered to us. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he was having the last supper with his disciples and he took the bread and he said, this is my body that's been broken for you. Take this in remembrance of me and what I've done. And then he took the cup symbolizing his blood that would be shed for our sin. And he said, this is the new covenant. This is the way in which people now are going to be allowed to be in relationship with God and be restored to his purposes. Take this in remembrance of me. So go ahead and take the elements before you and we'll partake here in a moment together.